Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Dad loves teenagers and believes in teenagers. Man, who remembers being a teenager, right? It's a bit awkward, right? If you're a parent of a teenager here, you're like in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. So, so I just think that teenage, uh, the young adults who, and God knows what young adults do on the weekends these days, that would volunteer their time at the end of a working or studying week to create a safe space for teenagers to battle against fear. I mean, I, I love that. Oh, I'm pumped. I want to go back to Waihai now. I just think it's so good. And I want to celebrate you as a church just for the way you believe in the next generation, the way you go for it. I know for many of you, it's like a sacrifice for you, you could be in any church, but to be in a church that makes a space for all generations, honestly, it means the world that you love the next generation enough, that you believe in them and that you invest into it. I think you're just an extraordinary community of people. I remember being um, a teenager myself and being so rattled by this idea that, that Christianity is only ever one generation away from extinction. And so it's on you and me and on your follower Jesus here and how we believe and invest into the next generation to see this incredible, irresistible, life-changing faith continue to endure. And so before we get into the next generation, what this series has been about is the first generation. And we've been jumping right back into what happened next after the resurrection of Jesus, after we celebrate at Easter time. And maybe you visited here for the first time at Easter and you've come back. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe this is your first time ever to church, your first time in a long time. We just, we're so grateful you're with us. My name is Jono and that was my wife Chloe up on the stage before with the pastors here. So we're stoked you're here. So we're, we just launched a new series called What Happened Next and obviously exploring what happened next after the resurrection? So last week we began talking about how Jesus birthed then his church. He predicted the church. He said he's going to give us the church. So we can throw that first slide up there. And he and we this word we talked about how it's badly kind of been interpreted. And this day when we think church, we think a building, and maybe not a building like this. Maybe you think a steeple or crosses, and maybe you're thinking it's it's organizations and it's hierarchy and it's. Uh, it's Christian institutions. That's not what Jesus was talking about. When he said the word church, it was not a religious term. It simply meant ecclesia. It's the Greek term. And properly translated rather than interpreted, it, is, it speaks of gathering or following or assembly of people after a purpose or a cause or a belief. So Jesus never came to establish a place, to establish buildings, to establish a religious hierarchy and institute a new kind of religious monologue. He began to, he wanted to change people. He wanted to gather people. And so maybe the reason you've been a little bit standoffish of church or faith or belief, maybe you've had a bad encounter before with a religious institution or religious organization. We get it. And what we're trying to explore in this series is what Jesus had in mind right at the beginning was so good and so life-changing that when the church began, when there were the first followers of Jesus, even though the whole world was pointed against it and had an agenda to snuff it out, it grew and it expanded everywhere. The Roman Empire, which was hell-bent on destroying it, even with all of its political might and military might, somehow the very empire that was totally committed to its destruction eventually became Christian itself. It's amazing. And in sandwich between the Roman Empire and ancient, the ancient Judaism temple faith, that they was like wanted to snuff out this little band of Jesus followers. They saw it as like a cult. But yet in the middle of all this pressure, it grew. And even fast forward 2,000 years, our historians today, and maybe you've done your own research in this, and sociologists were still scratching their heads going, we cannot explain by the normal means of historic events why this little band of Jesus followers, it didn't stay little and it didn't get snuffed out and it didn't die when their founder died. 
but in fact it grew. And obviously those who were there, they said, well, the reason it didn't die is because he didn't stay dead, right? He was resurrected. And from there, this message grew everywhere. And so we looked at that last week, how that happened. And then we went with the challenge. What was the first challenge we were given? Once Jesus uh, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, he gave the planet his Holy Spirit and empowered his followers to be a witness. And so this is what we looked last week. What does it mean to be a witness? Not simply an arguer for the faith or a defendant of the faith, but rather someone who personally goes, all I know is my life got changed by God and I think your life can be changed for the better too. So this is where we finished last week. This is where we're going to pick up today. And what's, what is fascinating to me is the tensions and the quarrels and the predicaments we have found ourselves in in the 21st century. And in an age where the world values uh, diversity, arguably over unity, and values uh, the idea of um, uh, relative truth rather than absolute truth. A religion like Christianity and its claims is definitely, and we're seeing it in this day and age, definitely at conflict with the modern thought. So could the Christian argument isn't we just not another way to God or another idea. The Christian argument, and it's from the mouth of our founder, from Jesus himself, is that he was the way, that he is truth. But that's a pretty massive claim, right? And so in a world that says there's no absolute truth, it's relative, it's what's true for you, the Christian worldview 100% comes into conflict with the modern thought about what is truth and what is belief. And so we've seen it, we see this outplayed a lot all the time. And, and if you've been following the news over the last few weeks, you've definitely seen a, uh, a, an issue come up. And in fact, there's a tribunal, a hearing happening today for a young athlete named Israel Folau. Who's heard of this story recently? Okay, good. No one's putting their hand up because everyone's nervous. Great. So Israel Folau is a Christian. Um, and in recent times, he's, he's arguably one of the best rugby players who has ever lived. And so he went, he changed codes. I don't know why he changed from codes because Queensland could really need his help over the next few years with State of Origin. But anyways, he went to AFL. God knows why he went there. But now he's playing for rugby. And so a few weeks ago, he posted on his Instagram feed a, a scripture. He posted a passage from the Bible. And it has caused such a furor. And there's been so much uh, an issue around it that now he's been... Uh, uh, brought before a tribunal to see whether his contract's going to be terminated, but it's opened up a way bigger debate and argument, all because he quoted from the Bible. Now, I'm not giving a commentary today on it, and I'm not trying to argue for or against anything. I just want to paint a picture about how fascinating this is and how it shows the times that we live in. Hopefully, you're going to feel really great about this afterwards rather than horrible. So, so for those of you, maybe you're in this, maybe you're somewhere on, on the side of the fence where you're not even, you're not sure of, of God, you're not, definitely not sure, you, don't, you know you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've got a whole lot of questions and doubts, or maybe, maybe you, your doubt, you have been a follower of Jesus, but now your doubts are bigger than your beliefs, and you're in that kind of space there. A lot of people have been criticizing what Israel posted and what he did, saying, well, he's, he's been hateful, he's been bigoted, and that even in those camps, though, a lot of people saying, even though he's, what he said is hateful and bigoted, what he quoted from the Bible, still in a nation like Australia, and what makes it great is that we have freedom of speech. And so as much as I hate what he's saying, I respect his right to be able to say it. We've got freedom of speech, but not freedom of consequences, but you know, he should be free to say it. In fact, one of the most remarkable write-ups I read was an interview with one of his teammates who played for the Wallabies. And this is fascinating. When he saw what Israel posted and, and saw it, particularly took it as though he was a, attacking one particular people group, this is what he wrote about his teammate. He said, I don't understand Israel. He said, he is the nicest guy on the whole team. He's kindest to everyone. He's most generous and welcoming to everyone. He has time for everyone. Everyone loves Israel. So I don't understand why he'd go and do something so hateful. So 
here's his own teammate saying, quoted as a scripture from the Bible, which I'm interpreting as hateful, but yet Israel's not hateful. And so it's this, this kind of weird convoluted tension. Now, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're someone who goes, well, yeah, I, I be, not only believe in the Bible, I kind of try and live my life out from what it says, there's a, there's a big difference between believing in God and believing God, you know, so maybe you're in that camp where I believe, you know, what's, and I believe this is the Word of God. So we'll come out, a lot of people, and maybe you've posted your own arguments about this and sent links to all your friends on Facebooks and all your non-church friends hoping it's going to change their mind as well. But say, no, no, he's right. Or else you've given a defense saying, well, this is a big persecution against religion and against faith. And indeed, there might be some measure of truth to that. Still, other of you that might come out and said, well, he, he might be right, but he's probably not being very wise in his approach. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard someone say that. Or like maybe, you know, you know, Jesus kind of said that term when it comes to being a witness. He says, be as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. But sometimes we have the tendency to be as wise as a dove and as gentle as a serpent. So, so maybe a Christian joke. <laughs> so, so maybe you're in, yeah, thank you. So maybe you're in kind of that camp. Maybe you're there going, look, I just think it was unnecessary in the, in the climate that our nation is in and the, our journey of our, of, our, of our culture. Why kind of throw kind of petrol on a fire as it were? And so, so I say all that to, to highlight just this is one example of by simply quoting the Bible and, and, and giving an argument and giving a defense and giving a rationale simply based off the Bible says it creates attention and it creates questions and it creates an argument in, in many cases that we have not seen before. And so what I want to do today, as we look at part two of what happened next, I want to kind of delve into an understanding of how we got our the Bible. And maybe where we've had a, a distortion, maybe a little bit of mixing and a little bit of cloudiness and understanding how do we, what do we mean by when we say the Bible and what does this look like and actually how do we outwork this and hopefully they get some clarity around it because, and the reason we need to do this is because culture has shifted. Culture has shifted. And if you've been maybe a follower of Jesus for decades, you've seen this, like you've been right in the middle of it going, man, the way my peers and my colleagues and my, you know, my people I work with, how we once related and, and how I could share my faith and, and talk about what I believe is very different to how it started when I was like, back, you know, back when I was a teenager. And now, or maybe for you, you're like, you've, you're, you've never, you didn't have a Christian or faith background. And so you've kind of, you're just recently engaging with this and you're going, wow, this is all heated and it's kind of the lines have been drawn and I've got to find out where I stand. Do I stand on this side? Do I stand on that side? I'm on the left, I'm on the right. Who do Christians vote for? You know, which one is, I don't understand. Whoever they vote for, I'm going to vote for the other guy or whatever it might be, right? I'm not saying this is a good thing or bad thing. I'm just saying this is the thing. Culture has changed. And the reason this is important to note, and again, I'm not saying I like this particularly, but it's just what it is. The Bible does not hold the same weight and authority in the public view, at least in this country, that it once did. And where once upon a time, you might have been able to go on, the Bible says, and that settled it for you, and you thought that should settle it from everyone else, can't do it anymore. Case in point, Israel Flower. Because as much as the Bible says a whole lot of stuff that you know your faith was based off, and people might not know that particularly really good stuff that you like, a lot of people know what else the Bible says. And it's often the what else the Bible says that makes our faith very much indefensible at times. And we find ourselves sweating and perspiring and panicking and giving defense for things that perhaps the first followers of Jesus who were there at the resurrection would say to us today, why are you fighting over that? We didn't even have a, a what? A the Bible. What's a the Bible? It wasn't there. And what I want to look at today, and I, I want to tread on this, tre tread here cautiously and carefully, and I'm glad I had a, like, a practice run with the first service, no one strung me up. So 
So, because I'm not a pro at this, and I don't want to claim that I'm the, you know, the guru. Many of you have been reading the Bible and been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. So I want to tread on this humbly and carefully. And if you want to engage in a conversation with me beyond this, Ben, keep coming back, <laughs> as someone says all the time. Come and talk to me. I'd love to have this conversation. But I don't want to, as, as your pastor, I don't want to um, not tread into troubled waters for fear of saying the wrong thing. So I want to tread cautiously. I want to tread humbly, but I also want to be bold and I want to be as clear as I can about this and hopefully bring some clarity around and, and around this issue, particularly in light of what we can learn from the first followers of Jesus who were there at his resurrection. And so as much as society has changed and as much as the Bible, in, and keep in mind, I'm talking about culture at large. So if you're not a Christian here, you're someone that doesn't usually come to church, you're already not in your head going, yeah, the Bible is not authoritative to me. You can't just tell me something is because the Bible says and expect that's the argument. And if you are a Christian here and you're someone who lives your life by what's written in the Bible, you, the way sometimes you've got to understand it is if someone tried and gave an argument to you about what you're doing wrong or how you're living your life and said, because the Quran says, many of you would say, well, I don't care that Quran says it. Why? Because it's not authoritative to you. It's just a book that doesn't hold that clout in your life. In the same way, you have a world, we have a world that by simply giving an argument based off the Bible says, it's not authoritative to people, comes across hateful, comes across bigoted. And once again, you might not like that and, and you wish it wasn't the case. I certainly wish it wasn't the case, but it's the case. But what would the first followers of Jesus say? I think they would say, guys, you're making a big fuss about something we never made a fuss over. Because when we saw Jesus resurrected, when we heard what Jesus said and, and, and saw Jesus do what Jesus did, and then we saw him pull off what no one has ever pulled off. He predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection because it changed everything for us. And he gave us an eternal hope and an eternal promise that nothing else in this world could offer. It meant that this life had more meaning than just this life. It meant that our lives counted for more than just stuff now and just finances and that sickness and, and trouble in this life didn't mean the end of our story that there was a great hope because trust it, this message was so good. The resurrection of Jesus changed the game for humanity and it spread like wildfire. Even the Romans with all their military and their army and their laws and their threats and their genocide, it couldn't snuff this hope out. People were drawn to it. And for several hundred years before there was ever a the Bible, people flocked to this message. So if you're freaking that the world doesn't see the Bible the way you see the Bible, don't panic. We weren't panicked. We weren't worried. We didn't have a, the Bible. And somehow the faith grew. And this is the first part I want to start today because this is really important to understand. Is for you and I, the good news is, at least, well, it's good if you're a follower of Jesus here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hang in there. Luckily, our faith, Christian faith, is never based on a book. It was not birthed by a book. It was birthed by the event. Christianity was birthed by the event of the resurrection of Jesus, not the book about the event. You with me still? Christianity was birthed by an event. The apostles and the first eyewitnesses of Jesus, they gave a bold witness and invited people to follow this message, not with the line, the Bible says, therefore you must. They started with, I was, I was a broken, lost person, and the message of Jesus' resurrection has changed everything about me and Jesus and with someone who pulls off their own death resurrection you generally have to listen to everything they say then right because who they said they were they obviously pulled it off and only one person could pull it off and that was obviously God so you generally listen to everything he said and he said I'm now to love the world the same way he has loved me so I don't have a, the Bible to quote but I certainly have a Jesus to follow and if he loved me 
in such a way. And keep in mind, Jesus, Jesus told them to love the world as He loved them before there was ever a cross involved. Jesus gave a new commandment to say, I want you to love others as you love me. We think it in terms of what happened at the cross. But for the first series of that, the guys who sat around that last supper, there was no cross yet. How did Jesus love them? Well, Matthew would say, I was rejected by my community. I was a tax collector. I was a trader. No one would talk to me. Yet Jesus invited me into his inner circle. He loved me as he found me. Simon, who was a violent extremist, who people wouldn't want to be associated with for fear that the Romans would hunt him down. And so he hung in the shadows and he hung in secret and he, and he, he hid his identity. Jesus called him out and said, I won't be ashamed to hang with you. You come hang with me. I'm going to show you a better way. Simon would say, he loved me as he found me. Peter, who was a nervous wreck and couldn't get under the shadow of his own father's business and hung with his brothers and was caught in this, this trade where there was seeming not much of a future in him and nobody had looked at him and nobody had thought him out to anything said, Jesus brought out inside of me potential and opportunity and a future that I did not think was possible with my life. So when they're looking at what it meant to love people as they were loved. They're looking at just Jesus simply found them as they were, loved them as they were, and didn't leave them as they, as he found them. Right from the beginning, Christianity was birthed, not by the book about the event, but by the event. What I want to do, is I want to address the two different covenants then that we have in our, the Bible. Anyone got a Bible? Great, you're in church. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm just a joke. So the Bible split, the easiest way to explain it is in two. There's what we call an Old Testament and a New Testament. The word Testament is, is once again, my view, a bad, uh, not simply translation, but a bad interpretation of the original idea. There were two covenants. Covenant, both the ancient Greek, which the New Testament was written in, and the ancient Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, kind of when it got translated through to Latin. It's where Latin eventually translated into English, where we got the word testament. The better idea is covenant. There were two covenants, and it's broadly speaking. There's an old covenant and a new co covenant. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're able to look at your Bible and go, I look at everything through a New Testament lens. And so you understand what it means to have a New Testament lens. You can look at God's covenant that He had with ancient Israel, and you can kind of differentiate. You can see some things that are not applicable to the human faith and to your life and to the world, but you see that. The world does not see that. When we use the term the Bible, it's to just take it all. You understand it through different a lens and different covenants. Most people don't. In fact, I'd argue that our most embarrassing <laughs> And indefensible, indefensible moments throughout history when it comes to being Christian have usually resulted from Christians leveraging old covenant concepts. I mean, you try and wage a war based off the Sermon of the Mount, right? You try and be prejudiced against another people group or another class to you based off the example of Jesus Christ. Most of our indefensible and embarrassing moments in Christianity throughout history have usually been because Christians have leveraged old covenant concepts. So today what I want to do is get some covenant clarity, covenant clarity. Now the word covenant, you're going, well, you've already lost me in covenant. Stay with me. Um, it's it generally, the, it's, a, it's an old Greek term used in ancient times to refer to like wills and contracts, all right? Agreements like a pact. That's same with ancient Hebrew. So it's like a pact or an agreement between God and people. Now, the old covenant, or what we'd usually call today our Old Testament, that's the first part of your Bible, uh, that was the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. So can, can we throw that slide up? So the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Covenant, is a covenant or an agreement or a pact that God made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. He didn't make it with individuals. He didn't make it with a person. He made it with a nation. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and give some clarity around the Old Testament. So, because for some of you here, maybe the reason you've been hesitant to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, maybe because there's been some events and stories and, and things that are written from the Old Testament that happen under the Old Covenant that you just can't come to terms with. And so you haven't been able to cross that line of faith. 
And for some of you, maybe you've been losing your faith because as you've started to read, not just what's in the Bible, but what else is in the Bible, stuff that's easy to kind of hide and and run away from, you now can't swallow it. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know how to justify this kind of Jesus idea of God. But then I read what's in the Bible and I don't know, my faith is now rattled. Once again, first followers of Jesus, they would say to you, stop stressing because this whole faith in Jesus thing, it wasn't because of what was written or the Bible says. They, we didn't go around telling people about this incredible message. We didn't go through all of Africa and Asia and Europe telling people the Bible says therefore believe. We told them about an event that happened. Our faith was tethered to an event, not sacred documents that were written to a group of people. And so the old covenant was a covenant God made with a nation of people. And you should be happy about that. He didn't make it with you. There's a whole lot in that covenant he made with ancient Israel that you should be stoked about and hollering about and giving a good amen about that you didn't have to keep a whole lot of that covenant, right? You just try and keep, I flat, I'm flat out trying to keep the one, you know, kind of deal God gave us, that Jesus gave us to love people as he's loved us. I'm flat out trying to do that. Imagine trying to fulfill the over 660 laws that are in the old covenant. Man, I get tired of just hearing myself talk about it. You should be stoked about this. But here's often the issue. is We find ourselves defending what happened in the Old Testament and what was the arrangement under an old covenant agreement when you really shouldn't even feel the need to have to defend that to try and give a basis for why your hope is in Jesus Christ. Let me bring clarity to this, okay? If you've ever tried to defend, because I know I certainly have, and again, if you aren't a Christian here and you're not a believer, this might be some of the reasons why you haven't been. And so I'm hoping today bring some clarity to it. If you've ever found yourself trying to defend the actions of the Old Testament God, the Old Covenant God, because you look at the, the violence and the blood and all, all the events that took place under this Old Covenant where God was establishing an, a nation in an ancient world, here's the thing. Take our cue from the first followers of Jesus. They never tried to defend it. Because for them, the world was a bloodied, gory, violent place. Heck, just following Jesus back when the first followers of Jesus, man, it would mean costing you your life. They were still burning Christians to crosses, right? The world was bloody. And it's what God did and how His interaction be able to establish a nation, an ancient world. Everyone in the ancient world understood it was a horrible warfare, life was cheap kind of place where, where national leaders would pass laws to genocide baby children, right? It was like a, a gross time. This speaks more about the willingness and the humility of the Creator to come into human mess and all of its bloodiness and all of its violence and all of its gore and all of its inhumanity and all of its injustice to say, I will enter that and I will go to my own bloodied, violent, unjust end in order to end that part of the human story forever, to usher in a new reign of peace and hope and second chances for the story of humankind, right? You should be celebrating that God jumped into the human mess, right? Not trying to defend, oh, he wasn't that violent, no. He was violent. You talk, and once again, the new, and wow, Johnny just said God was violent. Yeah, okay, we won't post this one online, okay? Well, you get what I'm trying to say there, right? So this was a covenant that God had made with an ancient people for an ancient time. And so here's the thing, that this mean I'm trying to say that are you saying that that's not God's word? Are you saying this isn't the spy word of God? Absolutely not. But we're trying to bring covenant clarity, okay? You've got an old covenant and then a new covenant. They're both equally inspired. What I'm trying to say is they're not equally applicable inspired and I am so grateful they're not equally applicable and it's funny when you start to look through this lens you start to realize we get a lot of our relationship counsel from a guy called King Solomon who had over 700 wives right now try to defend that in the Christian worldview of one wife one husband be tough once again follow the Jesus right by the beginning they say stop trying to defend Solomon we weren't 
Like Jesus didn't defend Solomon's actions. He leveraged Solomon's life saying, even in Solomon, in all his glory and all his splendor, wasn't even like one flower of the field, right? So we need to take our cues from Jesus, from a new covenant. So before there was a, the Bible, what was there? Well, there were, there were the ancient Jewish sacred texts. There was their law, which is the first five books of our now Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think I said that correct. And then you got a whole lot of history books, a whole lot of poetry books and wisdom books, and a whole lot of prophets. And so, so they were never called the Old Testament uh, until about 170 AD when this guy came along. And his name was Melito of Sardis. That's a true picture of him. So this guy, this is about 170 AD. This guy was a Jesus follower who lived in Turkey. And we get the first time we ever get the term Old Covenant or Old Testament referring to all the collection of writings and Jewish sacred texts that we now call our Old Testament. The first time we ever see him grouped together was one of his writings he did in 170 AD where he went and visited uh, ancient Israel and he wrote a letter back to his brothers. Keep in mind, this is 170 years after the resurrection of Jesus, about 140 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote back and said, I finally got a clear picture of all these Old Testaments, all these accounts and all the Jewish literature and Jewish sacred texts. And he referred to them as the Old Covenant. When eventually that all got translated, the term stuck and covenant became testament and we just rolled with it. And then fast forward about another 130 years, eventually all the writings that have been kind of um, kept and kind of protected and saved, the writing from the Apostle Paul, the gospel accounts of like the, the you know, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and, all, and James and Peter and Jude and all the other writings, John, they all got saved and so they all got collated together and we call that the New Testament and they all got put in a book together and they all got put a, a genuine leather binding around it and all the words of Jesus got printed and read and boom, there we invented around 300 AD of the Bible, okay? So up until that point, literally the, the term Bible means books. The Bible is a book of books. So, and we've just, and it's just cultural and this is not a criticism, but it's kind of a criticism. It's like, maybe it's not the wisest, maybe it hasn't been each wise is we keep referring to the Bible. And whilst you have your new covenant lens on and you can differentiate an agreement that God made with an ancient people for a set period of time, the rest of the world can't do that. And you try and talk about what, why you believe and what your faith is and they bring up, explain to me a seven-day flood. And you're like, ah, uh, well, Christians have even different takes on that. And explain to me seven-day flood. Well, good one, Jono. Seven-day creation, a global flood. Explain that to me, right? Explain to me the, the whale and the fish. Explain to me, the, like all these things, right? And so, and, and I'm not saying, I'm, for the record, I'm not saying any of this is incorrect, right? I'm saying, like, get your cue from Jesus. So, so we find ourselves defending and giving a reason for our faith, but you'll be struggle to find anyone that didn't know anything about Jesus, picked up the book of Genesis, read Genesis, and went, I'm going to follow Jesus now, right? It's not how it happens. Now, you're engaging with Jesus and you're following Jesus and you go back then into the old covenant to the Jewish text. Why don't we, we can just call him for clarity sake, the Jewish Bible. You're gonna learn a whole lot about what God is like and who he is and the story and the background and all this incredible symbology and prophecy that leads up to Jesus. You'll learn heaps from that. But that's not what our faith is based off. Our faith was based off an event. And so it leads us to our new covenant or the New Testament. And this is the covenant that God made with everyone who wants to participate. Old covenant, God made with ancient Israel for a set period of time, for a set purpose to establish a nation that would stand out from amongst all other nations, that God could shower His blessing and promise with, upon, which would foreshadow the life of a Christian, the promise that would come to someone to put their trust in Jesus, right? The new covenant though, God made with everyone who wants to participate. You still with me? Thank you, four people. Okay, so this is how a Bible is organized. There's an old covenant, new covenant. So the trouble is, though, it's all put in one book now, and we all share 
from this idea of the Bible. Now, what did Jesus have to say about this? Because obviously Jesus came as the kind of differentiating point between the two. And if ultimately the life of Jesus is what the Christian faith is based on, what did Jesus have to say about the separation of the two? Here's what Jesus said. This is what the Gospel of Matthew, um, this is how he records. In fact, before I, oh, we're there, we'll go to it. So this is Jesus. This is right in the middle of him teaching, uh, re-looking at, Every, this is, and he's talking to a Jewish audience and he was pulling apart the Jewish Bible, the Jewish sacred text. And as they were questioning Jesus and what the heck is he doing, he brought clarity to it. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish, abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to not destroy them, to not break them down and show them where they're wrong. I've come to complete it, to, to make the job accomplished and finished and done, to fulfill it. Let me, let me give you kind of an illustration, okay? Say you were caught up in heaps and heaps of debt, like and some of you might even, oh, John, that's really hitting home to me today, okay? So some of you might be even feeling like that right now. And you're, there was no way that you could repay your debt. You could repay your debt. And so one way is to think, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to declare bankruptcy. And what would that do? That doesn't fulfill your requirement that you owed. It simply just removes it. But if someone came along and paid off your debt, said, no, you can't handle this. I'm going to do this. I will do this in your behalf. The obligation of your debt then would be fulfilled. The contract would be accomplished. It would be settled. And this is what Jesus was arguing. He's saying, hey, I didn't come to destroy or to, ab- or to abolish the Old Testament. Okay, well, we've kind of grouped this idea of Old Testament now. Jesus referred to it as the law and the prophets. He said, I didn't come to completely abolish these and to wipe these off the map. He said, I came to fulfill what was written. I came to say, job done, mission complete. What God had in His mind to set up a nation in the middle of a world, I've came to be the fulfillment of those promises and that covenant that was made between God and a nation. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to, everyone say it together with me, fulfill. Good job. Now, here's the thing. Many people have debated and argued around, well, how was this fulfilled and how did, you know, what did Jesus exactly mean by this? And again, I don't claim to be the authority on it, but I do have a hunch and, and John, the, he wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who was one of the apostles, followers of Jesus, one of the eyewitnesses, not only of his resurrection, but he was the only disciple that we can see from Scripture that was actually there to witness his death. All the others of them had bolted and run away and were fearful. John was there. Keep in mind, there were many, many, many women still there, which means it shows us something about the strength and courage of women in the day when all the blokes had bolted. Interesting, right? Anyway, I wasn't trying to make any point there other than that's what happened. So, I did that as an example to say, why is that in the Bible? And go, because it happened. Anyway, so John was there, and this is what he said. This is Jesus' last words that we have recorded. Jesus said, it's finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, once again, I don't pretend to have the answer to this. Many people have debated, and books have been written. Well, what was finished? Seems to me that an old covenant that was established where a sacrifice had to take place for the remission of sins, the sins of God's people, and a sacrifice had to be made again and again and again because none of them were perfect. But eventually God said, I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice. I will come in a body and I will die a criminal's death. I will be a sacrificial lamb on behalf of not only all the sins of Israel, but all the sins of the world. He said, a covenant finally needs to be fulfilled. The debt needs to be settled. It needs to be paid off and I'm going to pay it off in my body. And so when he hung there as a sacrificial lamb on the cross, no wonder, in my mind at least, he said these words, it is finished. Because the requirement under the old covenant and all the things that are written in the Old Testament that God made between himself and ancient Israel, it was finally concluded, finished, achieved, done in Jesus Christ. In the same way that if there was like 
a building that was getting constructed and there was like a blueprint there and you're building. Jesus said, look, I didn't come to destroy this building that was getting built and say, this building's a waste of time. Let's build a new one. He said, no, no, no. I've come and I've put a lock on the door handle. This building is complete. Mission done. Blueprint accomplished. It is finished. And so then a new covenant was started. Not just a kind of a part two of the old one or improved version. It was a brand new covenant between God and people. It was started not based on what was written, but on what had, say it with me now, what happened. A new covenant started, not based on what was written, but based on what had happened. So a shift took place. And we'll ask the, the question in this series is what happened next? Well, a shift happened. And we went from an old covenant deal where it was often about what we had to do, what we had to do for God, to have our standing with God, to be able to be in right relationship with God. It was a, it was a two-way street where I had to sacrifice and I had to obey laws and I had to obey. And then there was a new covenant, which wasn't about what we did for God. It was what we do from our standing with God. Because of what God has done for us through His death, and resurrection, we now get to live a life and believe what we believe and live out our faith in such a way based from from our standing with God. Here's the shift. It was from a for to a from. Say that 10 times over really quickly, right? From for to from. And this is the radical shift that took place. What happened next? It all changed from being about a faith that was doing things for God and, and, and for my right relationship with God to I am right with God through what Jesus did for me. Everything I do now is from my relationship with God. This is what happened next. And to give an illustration, I'll finish on, on kind of this, this picture here. This is important to understand and how kind of the, the early church wrestled with this. The event that took place that we know as today is called the Jerusalem Council. And you can read about it in Acts 15. For the sake of time, I won't go into all the details, but to give you kind of a comp- compressed version of the idea, for the first 20 years as the, the, the message of Jesus began to spread, even though this was a message for the whole world, it seemed to stay pretty localized. Mainly all these Israelites and Jewish people, they kind of kept it amongst themselves. But every now and again, the Holy Spirit was reaching other people. And so people, you know, different apostles and different witnesses to the resurrection start seeing Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, buy into this faith. And in fact, it, got, it started spreading so much that it became an issue. And so a, a religion that started very heavily Jewish, you had a lot of guys there who took it very offensively that all these non-Jews were becoming Christians. And so they're, they're like, hang on, shouldn't there have to be something for this right? Shouldn't there have to be something for their standing with God? They can't just kind of get in free of charge or free of an operation. And so they're like, we're going to tell them an operation is required. And so literally, this is how the account goes, that all these guys who are really fired up about, you know, it has to be a little bit of old covenant mixed in with the new covenant. That's the only way this happens. It's all mixing and matching. They went and started telling all these Gentile believers, hey, you guys must have to get a bit of surgery to prove that you do trust Jesus. You must do something before you can be in on this Jesus movement. And that is the point where all the men left the church. And we've been trying to get them back ever since, right? <laughs> so this got so tense. Eventually, it got so big. They're like, look, we have to have a church meeting about this. And if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably sat in a church meeting like this before. They're lovely occasions. They're really nice and friendly, okay? So maybe that's the reason why you haven't been in church a long time. You went to a church meeting once and like, I don't know about this. But anyway, they're all there. The big guns were in the room. Peter was there. John was there. James, the brother of Jesus, was there. I mean, can you imagine that? The brother of Jesus, the very brother who thought Jesus was crazy and would mock his brother publicly. Because what would you do if your big brother claimed he was the son of God, right? You'd do the same thing. But what do you do when he rocks up after he was buried? Hey, James, still alive, you know. Okay, you're God, I'll follow you. So James was there. Paul was there. Paul wrote like two thirds of our New Testament, even before it was the New Testament, but even before it was written. He was the guy who was there, who later on became the Paul. You get the idea. They're all there. 
and they all start sharing accounts of what had happened and how this message, and they're all kind of scratching their head going, you know, Jesus did tell us this would happen. He said, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, in Judea, yes, even in Samaria, you know, those guys, and yet to the ends of the earth. Oh, yeah. This has been 20 years, roughly, since the resurrection of Jesus, before they finally went, we've kind of got to take this seriously. So they all started to share stories about the life change that happens through Jesus and, and this new covenant idea that wasn't an old covenant model where people had to do something for God. It was like, no, we get to live a life from a relationship with God. They all shared their thoughts. And then James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and kind of gives a concluding remark. And if you've been around Suncoast for any amount of time, you've probably heard me share this a million times because it's so central to why we do what we do and how we do what we do and what we do. In fact, I've printed this out and it's been stuck in my office for the past five years. I think it's so important. If we can really capture this, I think we'll capture something that made the faith of the early Christians so irresistible to a world that was so against what they believed. James said this, Acts 15 verse 9 says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are returning to God. Saying, guys, here's the thing. I know we've all been wrestling with this for the past two decades and trying to figure out how this faith thing works exactly. Like this, it's so good, but people are rushing to it. Here's the thing. We've been trying to keep this old covenant. We've been trying to keep all our Jewish laws and these and all of our sacred writings and texts. We've failed miserably at it. That's why we're stoked that Jesus came. But this message is bigger than just our nation and our race and our religion. This is for everyone. He goes, so why would we try and make it difficult? This message that is so good and, and so life-changing and so irresistible. Why would we try and put up obstacles in front of people getting to God? So something changed in their community from that point onwards. There was a remarkable shift in how this faith in Jesus began to get witnessed. And he used this word difficult. Can we go to the next slide? Difficult. Because at this point here, the message of faith was appealing to Gentiles, but the community of faith was not. There was an us versus them. There's still this racial tension. There was insiders and outsiders. There was inclusiveness and exclusiveness. And it was like, so there's, there's this tension. It was like, we got the ancient scriptures. We got our you know, Hebrew Bible, and you guys have to get on board with this before you can get in. James is like, can we just stop that? Can we stop making it difficult? Can we maybe be, and here's the thing, and this is the challenge I think James would say to us, can we be the kind of community that people who might not even believe what we believe, and maybe that's like you today, where people who don't even believe what we believe, but yet they envy how well we love one another. They are jealous of how we do community. They are hungry for how we do life. They might think our beliefs are a, bit, a little bit left of field or right of field, a bit odd. But man, they look at how we live out this faith and go, I think we want in. I don't know if I believe everything you believe, but James is saying, can we do that? Can we be in our community that doesn't push people away from the message that we're trying people to hear, but rather include people in? Let's not make it difficult. I wonder if we'd say to you and say to me, guys, you are doing so good with taking this message seriously. Let's keep working. Let's keep serving. Let's keep being generous in such a way that we don't make it difficult. Let's not put, let's not put obstacles and barriers in front of people for them to get to know God. Because the amazing thing he said is, he says, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to the Lord. And this word turning to me is, is, is so fascinating. And we talked about this a few months ago, if you're here, talked about this idea, the Christian term of this is repentance. And so they recognized people were repenting. People were turning to God. People were wrestling with faith. People were engaging with the message of Jesus. He's saying, people are doing it. And he's saying, so can we not get in the way of that? Rather, can we get behind it and support it? And in fact, can we, can we invite people into this the same way we were invited into this? We didn't get into this because the Bible said so. We got into this because God loved us so. 
We got into this because we, our lives were such a mess, but yet Jesus loves us so incredibly authentically and so incredibly deeply that our lives would change. So why would we try and tell people they have to kind of get on board with fulfilling a covenant that is obsolete, a covenant that is completed, a covenant that is finished and fulfilled in the life of Jesus when we couldn't even stick to it back in the day? These people are turning to God. These people are hungry for God. Let's not make it unnecessarily difficult by putting up obligation obstacles to faith. Right? Let's not. And so so I wonder if they got this. And I wonder if we've lost something because we've gotten so flat out about trying to impose our Christian culture and our Christian language and our Christian ethos onto a world that isn't Christian. Right? The first followers of Jesus would say, hey guys, this message is enough. You don't have to go waving around a leather-bound book saying what it says. Your life has been changed by the love of God and the same thing that got us into this and the same thing that got you into this is probably the same thing that's gonna get the rest of the world into this. And if the world in the middle of Roman oppression and Judaism temple religion flocked to this in spite of all the odds against it before there was a the Bible, he goes, maybe in the 21st century, you're gonna be okay too. Maybe it's actually not even as tough as it was back in our day, but yet we love this so much. So my, I think James would say to Suncoast, you guys are doing so good. Keep resisting the urge to make your faith unnecessarily resistible. Did you get that? Keep resisting the urge to make your faith unnecessarily resistible. I think a great way to kind of conclude this is by quoting someone that's a lot smarter, a lot more reputable than I ever have been. Charles Spurgeon, great British preacher, about 250 years ago said this, the Bible is not the light of the world. It's the light of the church, and it is. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians, and you are the light of the world. So here's my question. Here's my challenge to us. Maybe the way we need to engage with our culture and our world isn't by going, well, the Bible says. Maybe the way we engage with our culture is, Jesus loved me so much when I was at my most broken my most horrible and I was hurting so many people around me I was so selfish self-centered all I can explain is I was overwhelmed by the sense that I am loved and welcomed and accepted by God as I was and in fact it was just so good the more I started chasing him down the more I just felt there was a power that's the only way I can explain it like a power inside of me that I plugged into and it started changing me from the inside out and so I didn't do things for my standing with God. I better do this for God. I better do this because my Christian is like, because I became a follower of Jesus, something happened on the inside of me. Christians call it the Holy Spirit. And from that, my life began to change. And I reckon it could happen for you too. All I know is Jesus told me in the same way that I've been loved by God, my responsibility is now to love the world in the same way. Not because the Bible said so, but because that's what Jesus did to me so. My prayer is that we would take our cue from them so maybe we can find the boldness and the courage that they had to share their faith without apologizing, without being fearful. That's my prayer for us, for our future. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you do indeed love us so. You accept us right as you find us, right as we are. And so today, Lord, I pray for every heart, maybe those that are caught in between two different covenants where they're still struggling with trying to earn your approval, earn your salvation. I pray today that we would again witness the beauty gravity of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I pray those today that have never encountered it, their heart to be open and softened towards the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ.
Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.